Welcome to the Language of Ahava podcast, a podcast for families with young children. So what happens when a rabbi and an early childhood teacher walk into a podcast? I think it's going to be fun, and I'm sure it's going to be about connections. Hi, I'm Karen DeWister, and I'm the early childhood teacher. And I'm David Steinhardt. I'm the senior rabbi at B'nai Torah Congregation. Every conversation that I have with Karen is always fascinating and leads to new ideas. So joining together with Karen, making connections together is really what our goal is. I thank you because what the perspective that you bring to my world and my experiences from the Torah, from tradition, from community, um, from parenthood and grandfatherhood, it's all magnificent. So here comes our podcast. Uh, we'll be posting every other Friday just before Shabbat because we want to make these connections with you. And when you give a little ahava, you make this world a better place. I'm ready, Karen. Let's get going. Here we go. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Language of Ahava podcast with Rabbi David Steinhardt. Hello, everybody. Hi, Karen. Nice to be back together. Great to see you, Rabbi. And I'm Karen Dewister. And we kind of want to know, how's everyone feeling out there? But even bigger, how's everyone feeling when things aren't going all that well and everybody's not happy easy, lighthearted. So Rabbi has put out a, a, an image for me that I want to go a little deeper in. And the image is the title of this podcast, which is The Crying Shofar. What do we do with sadness? And of course, I want to talk about this for ourselves, very importantly for our children and for our world. So I'm going to pass this right to Rabbi Steinhardt. A crying shofar, Rabbi. What 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 are you thinking? Yeah, well, the sounds of the shofar symbolize different things, as we know. One is that it's a it's a call to freedom, it's a call to war. It's been used in all all different ways throughout our tradition. Um, but it is also a it is also a cry. And it's very important to recognize the shofar as a cry. And I think this year maybe the shofar is crying a little bit louder than it has, at least for me, in previous years, with the amount of sadness and the amount of amount of death that we've seen around us. So to be able to recognize the cry is important. Karen, when I was, I, I want to connect it with something very personal and the way we deal with crying. Um, when I was a little kid, my mother and her friend took her friend's son and I to a Broadway show every year during our winter vacation. I lived near, not far from New York City. And one year we saw a uh, Broadway show that was an absolute failure. It was called Ben Franklin in Paris. And there was a song in that play. The name of the song was Half the Battle is Learning to Smile. And it was about how we have to approach new situations. And I remember that my, um, my mother, my parents used that as an expression to me when I felt particularly sad. As a little child, and I was the youngest son in a, in a family of three where I had two older sisters, I was taught that big boys don't cry. I was taught that, you know, you had to, you had to like gut it out and you had to be tough and that was the way to be. But as an adult, what I've learned is that crying is really, really quite important. 
the power of our own tears to release, to heal, and to connect us. Um, before we come back to the shofar, I will share that we do an activity in our newborn class at family time. And it is us, um, I, I try to give parents paper and pencil when we do this so that they can actually like write images. But it, it's a question of how do you feel when you hear your baby crying? And, and so it's, but how do you feel when you hear your baby crying and you don't know if your baby's sick? How do you feel if you hear your baby crying and it's the middle of the night and you are sleep deprived and exhausted and overwhelmed and have something urgent to do the next morning? How do you feel when your baby is crying in your mother-in-law's arms and you take your baby back and your baby settles in as if the baby has just come to his or her most perfect safe space? So our response to tears when we do this exercise, and it goes on for a bit, is of course you feel the helplessness, the overwhelm, the sadness, the guilt of not being perfect enough. But then you also feel connection, power. A word that comes up often for mothers is motherly. When I So to be able to respond to sadness, to tears, to aches, has many, many, many sides to it. And so I, of course, want to us as adults to be able to hold children's tears, hold their sadness, and even help them, maybe as your parents or my parents of that generation were never able to do, help us express and release that emotion in its purest way. So rather than fix it, change it, um, control it. Um, so anything more you want to say about expressing those tears? And, and before we started the podcast, when I had asked you what that crying shofar meant, and, and I had asked if it meant about empathy, and you said, I also want it to mean that it's okay if the crying is our first response to a situation. So talk about that if you can, as a young boy and as a man, um, that first response of sadness. I think there are, you know, there are two levels here. One is the, um, the, the ability to, the willingness for giving permission for an individual to cry. And that each of us has to be able to give ourselves that permission to cry. Crying often comes as the first response to sadness, tragedy, shock. You know, like we cry when we feel lost, when we're hurt. And we have to allow that to happen. The other side of it is, kind of, is what you referenced a little more. And that is, how does the one who hears the cry respond to the cry? So as you were speaking, one of the things I was thinking about is if, if you hold a baby that's crying and you say, oh, don't cry. It may be that the language should be different. Maybe the language should be, I hear your cry. I, hear I you. understand your cry. I feel your cry. And I cry with you. So that, you know, the repression of the cry is very painful. It's really painful. And it's, it leads to perhaps the expression of inauthentic feelings. 
So, you know, the, the shofar, the reason the shofar is referenced as a cry, it has to do with a lot of different things. It has to do with, uh, the rabbi said that when Sarah learned that Abraham took Isaac up to the mountain to be, uh, to be given as a sacrifice, she cried and her cry was not heard. There's another cry that's expressed in the in, by the rabbis, and that's the cry when Isaac was spared, and that was the cry of relief. Before that, in the Torah, and this we read on the first day of the holiday, we have the story of the banishment of Ishmael, where Ishmael and Hagar are sent away, and Ishmael sitting in the wilderness and the desert, he's, he's thirsting and he's starving and he begins to cry. And the text says, God heard the cry of the boy where he was. And that's like reflective of a compassionate God. That is the God who hears the pain, the God who hears the cry wherever it's coming from. And so as I have to say, this podcast and these conversations are, are just have me in awe and wonder that what I perceive as essential relationships among parents and children, you show me is an essential relationship between grownups and community, between each other or um, a God. But this, this idea of I mean, because I, I, I feel it in the historical sense when I imagine the shofar crying and that anguish and that big loss. It's a lament. It's, it's, so it's, it's a kind of cry, a, a bigness of ache that we minimized in our culture in 2021. Well, or at least we did before COVID and we're only learning it. To the, to the degree of heartache, but then the degree of connection that I am willing to stop and listen. I'm yeah. willing to hear. And then for those who don't feel heard, whether it's a child or a people that get lost, who get forgotten or overlooked. You know, uh, we're marking 20 years from the destruction of the Twin Towers on that horrible day of 9-11 and um, you may remember and most many of the people listening may remember that the response of the president after that event was essentially we're going to get to normal and everybody should go shopping to show the strength of America, America's economy that we can be normal but maybe that was a big mistake maybe he should have said we have to grieve together first let's cry together and that There's the heal, the healing. Uh, wait, let's let's go do this because when he said that, that easy fix was something we wanted to feel was true enough to work, and it doesn't work, and it and that inauthentic response leaves us fractured and broken and unhealed so that 20 years later, we're still trying to figure out how to put ourselves back together again. But whether you're a parent with a child, like let me distract you from pain, from suffering, from hurt, you know, like get up and just go do it again. You know, your parent telling you to smile. It's we, it's easy to want that fix. And I think that we're here both on a, 
interpersonal level and on a community level to say, don't be fooled. Take the, take the high road, take that harder path because there's a price for not feeling. There's a price for not listening. There's a price for not grieving in times of sadness. Yeah. The Jewish tradition does not, um, does not encourage people after loss of loved ones to just get back into the world. Rather, they say you have to sit and mourn for seven days. And in the tradition, the first three days are known as Shloshayamim Bepi, which means three days of crying. Actually, you're encouraged to cry. And I think it's really, really important. Yeah. Okay, so to Jewish tradition, can you say something about, um, and then after the seven days, if I understand it correctly, the family continues grieving, but the rest of us have to keep living keep that there's a there's a there's a, a a request for us to um to 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 move past the grief but not explain that because i yeah, think well, no so the, so the tradition opens a space for grieving it's a seven day period known as shiva there are periods that go beyond the shiva but they're not considered to be times of intense grieving but rather awareness of loss and the realization of the need for comfort. But you're not allowed to sit for eight days. You sit for sh seven days for Shiva. Shiva literally means seven, Karen. And then you go on. So it provides the space for the crying and the space for the sadness and the space for the grief. But then also says, we encourage you not to stay there. You can't stay there. So the initial response is an important response to give out, give that feeling. Okay, and can you speak to that as someone who counsels grieving families and who's lived through grief? How do you compartmentalize that? It's not an on-off switch. How do you honor the sadness and keep going? By giving expression to it. That to, by saying, I say to people, I'll, I'll give you an example. People will say, I don't know what's wrong with me. My mother died you know, two months ago, and I still find myself crying every day. And I said, it's because there's nothing wrong with you that you're crying every day and that you have to allow yourself to continue to give expression for that. If you try to hold back, if you try to refrain from that, it's going to go on for a long, long, long time. I assure you that with the passage of time, the crying will ease up. It will lessen but don't allow your heart to close to it. Don't allow your emotions to stop with it. Okay, so can there be an application of this for parents and their children? Um, where, as you said, we hold the crying baby or the brokenhearted teenager even, um, and the anguish of the parent, you know, that cliche, you're only as happy as your least happy child. Yeah. 100% true. But we can't collapse into our children's sadness and grief because they need us to be, to hold a bigger world for them to return to or to have hope for when they're ready. So, yes, when I tell the stories to the parents of newborns who are crushed under their, their baby's 
inconsolability sometimes that feels eternal, but it's not. And, and, and bullying in schools and heartache and unfairness and all of the things that we want to rage for on behalf of our children. We can do that separately from them, but while we're with them, we have to hold something else, which I think the Jewish tradition of grief is a very good example of. Um, I think, I think you, you hit it right. You know, I think on one hand, we... We allow for the expression of it. We hold it, but we also live aspirationally. You know that this isn't going to last forever, and we have to show we have to sow strength. Part of that strength, by by the way, is allowing for the crying. You know, the the strength isn't the denial. I I want to share a story. Um, you know, I'm 68 years old. I think I say that at each podcast. I visit my kids. I have trouble with separation from my family. As a little kid, I had this problem, and I still I still have it. I love being in place with my family. So early in the summer, I went to visit my kids, and I have a daughter who's probably the age of a lot of the people watching this, and she's 38 years old. And I was with them for uh, almost a week, and as I was preparing to leave the morning that I was going and packing up my stuff, I found myself feeling so sad about saying goodbye to my grandson and my son-in-law and my daughter. And I was crying when I said goodbye to them. And then I got in the car and I drove away and I was crying. And then a little bit later in the day, I wrote Gabrielle a text and I said, I'm so sorry I was crying when I said goodbye to you. And she wrote me back and it was like, this was my lesson. She said, you should never feel sorry that you're crying because you teach us something so important. Grown men do cry and grown men should cry. And it was, it was really wonderful permission to receive. And I think as we listen to the shofar, as we listen to each other, as we listen to our children and our parents, that we can take um, not joy, but acceptance and um, a contentment when we can sit with each other through tears. Um, yeah, that there are the sad times of separation, of longing, um, and those and those ancient words of longing, I think, remind us at this time of year um, to pause and hold um, all that we rush through on our reg- in our regular day to day lives. Yeah, you know, if, if you see people that never cry, there are also people that never really laugh either. That, you know, like the the capacity to express emotion is such an important dimension of being a human being. So if we can really cry at the right times, you know, we can really laugh at the right times also. And that's important. Uh, A a senior mentor of mine once told me the story about a, this goes back decades, but a rabbi who went from a little tiny synagogue, a little shul into a big modern synagogue with a beautiful sanctuary. And he was so proud of it. And he invited his old European mother to come to the shul to sit in the service. And she sat there and afterwards he went over to her. She didn't look very happy. And he said, what's wrong, mama? And she said to me, this is a beautiful place. It's nice to hear the choir. She said, but I wonder, is this a place where you can cry? And that's really so important that we have those places where we can cry. What a perfect closing that I think we want to leave everyone with. Let's create places 
in community and in our families where everyone feels safe and trusted to cry and to and to just be ourselves. Thank you, Rabbi. Uh, I love that Judaism, because it's an authentic community religion, creates emotional intelligence in our lives. And I love this overlap between Jewish community and emotional intelligence in young families. So cheers. And cheers. That's, by the way, that's what keeps me in it. That's, I agree with you. If it didn't have emotional intelligence, it would not have the draw that it has. So it's really, they're very much connected for me. And get ready, everyone, because we have an awesome uh, podcast coming up on big monster emotions. So we're coming back to this topic and uh, see you next time, Rabbi. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today, for being part of this moment, for being part of these Ahava connections, and for trying to give a little Ahava to one another. Thank you to my co-host, Rabbi David Steinhardt, for always adding timeless wisdom and a meaningful connection to our world and to this podcast. Thank you, B'nai Torah Congregation, for being our community of support and a place to share with one another. You hold us together in a world that is too often pulling us apart. Thank you to Cantor Magda Fishman for your voice, your whistling, your song, and the soul that you bring to everything you do. If you don't know Cantor Fishman, please check her out at B'nai Torah Services. You will be transformed and inspired. Finally, thank you to the Jewish Federation of South Palm Beach County for helping to fund this Ahava podcast and Ahava Nature Shabbat. And to our Ahava Malahim, our angels, the families who also help underwrite these Ahava projects. For more information about B'nai Torah Congregation, the website is btcboca.org. You can also find me, Karen Deerwester, at familytimeinc.com. Until next time, Shabbat Shalom, and give a little Ahava. Take care. Give a little Ahava. When you give a little love, you'll see You'll make this world a better place A much better place to be When you give a little Ahava When you give a little love, you'll see You'll make this world a better place A much better place to be You'll make this world a better place A much better place to be